Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I am the founder of Project MedTech, Dwayne Mancini. If you need anything from Project MedTech or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of Project MedTech series, MedTech Money. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Howard Walthall from Lumaheal Therapeutics. In this episode, Giovanni and Howard discuss how he got into the medical technology space, the technology his team is working on at Lumaheal, how his background as a lawyer has helped him run his company thus far, negotiating terms with initial investors, difference between late stage and early stage investing, success being more important than dilution, the importance of networking as a CEO, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Howard Walthall. Thank you very much for your time on joining us here. This is MedTech Money, the podcast series, which is powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. So once again, thank you for joining us. And the purpose of us being here together is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world, and I've come to this conclusion and discovered that there's really no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or even invest capital within the MedTech industry. So my goal here was to extract insights and anecdotal stories from investors and investment bankers and entrepreneurs like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from this information or also for generations of entrepreneurs to come. I assume that the audience listening in right now is a mixture of both experts, people who have been there and done that before, in addition to novices, people who are aspiring to be those future entrepreneurs raising capital. But I wanted to extract your story insights and advice so that we can share with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and has no clue about what lies ahead of them on this capital raising journey. And so I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And the reason why you and I specifically are here today is I want to talk about your capital raise, raising series A from an early stage med tech entrepreneur's perspective, especially from here in the US get that story about what company you're representing, obviously a little bit more about yourself, and then understanding the mechanics and process that go along with segueing from raising seed capital through going to that likely first time venture capital raise for Series A. And we can get into those nuances and details. But before we do that, I have three questions that I wanted to ask you specifically, engage the audience, and then get into your background. The first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? And am I missing anything else important that you'd like to add? Yeah, so great question. And, and thanks for doing this, Giovanni. I think this is a great project and I'm, I'm really uh, glad to participate. Um, so look, I think it all starts with people. That's my perspective. I mean, people are the core of any, any project you're trying to do. It comes down to the people who are doing it together. Money, obviously critical. I mean, that's the gas in the car, right? With no gas, you go nowhere. Uh, but also I think for, particularly for med tech startups, you know, the problem you're trying to solve and your technical solution, however far along it is in development are really important. You know, if you're building a software company and you read the Silicon Valley press, then, you know, they can change from one subject to another pretty fast. But in the med tech space, we can't do that. Our lead time is too long. So it's important to be working on a, a, a good problem, a problem that needs a solution, and to have a solution that makes sense, because it's awfully hard to change course in the middle in med tech. Couldn't agree more. Which leads me to my second one on you being a leader of a med tech startup. If you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently? 
Yeah, I absolutely would. I love it. Um, I like the people leadership part. I like the organization building, but I also like the technology. And I like the fact that we're helping people. I mean, there's a lot of industries where people say that they're helping people, but we have a pretty direct path to improving people's lives. And, and that's nuts. That, that's a great feeling when you can do it. And lastly, I'll, I'll spoil the name by saying it aloud, but Lumaheel Therapeutics, namely Lumaheel. What does the name of your company mean? Yeah, this was actually not a, a great uh, branding insight. So we, we use light energy to heal. So Luma Heal is pretty direct, but you know, you want it to, you know, make sense, but also sound good. And I, I like the name. I think it sounds good. <laughs> Looks good. good. I agree. Um, and so lo and behold, let's finally get to the man behind the voice right now. Howard Walthall, please tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Where are you now? Everything in between. How'd you build your career and ultimately become CEO of Luma Heal Therapeutics? Yeah, so I'm a, an Alabama boy. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm actually, after some, some circuitous paths, still sitting here in Birmingham, Alabama today, so I'll get to that. Um, I, I, I didn't really go on a direct path in my career, so you know, other people might, might say it was a bit uh, twi twisty, but I was a biomedical engineer by training. Um, came out, worked in cardiovascular research for, for a minute, um, went to law school, was an IP and technology lawyer, and did that for about a decade. Um, and then I went in-house with a client and pretty quickly switched over to the business side of, of things. And I ran uh, that company. It was called NewTech. It's a regenerative medicine company developing products for wound care and surgical applications, especially orthopedics and podiatry. And so I, also, I built that business up. We sold it to Organogenesis, which is a, was private, but was, went public while I was there. Um, and I worked there for about three years doing strategy business development, running my legacy business also, and then left there about a year ago, uh, looking around for, for something new and, and, uh, engaged with this Lumi Hill project. So it was something that I had seen um, while I was in business development at Organogenesis. Obviously, I, I was looking at the whole space pretty carefully. And this was one of the more exciting technologies I'd seen. So when I left Organogenesis, I connected with the, the original developers of the technology and said, hey, I, I want to try to do something with this in Wound and Burn, which is my space. And the rest is history. Here I am. So, which leads us to what does Lumaheal Therapeutics do? And, and tell us about the company itself. How big are you? How small are you? What are you doing on the capital raise? Maybe make that towards the end of, of the pitch of what Lumaheal Therapeutics is. Um, but we know that it's light, as you mentioned, with Lumaheal. For healing. For healing. There you go. So, let, let's get into what you're actually doing with the technology and company. Yeah, so Lumihill is a technology, uh, it's built on a technology platform that uses fluorescent light energy to heal. Uh, wounds, burns, and surgical incisions is my focus, but the platform is actually has applications to other things, dermatology, veterinary. So there's other uh, applications you can use it for, but essentially it's a quantum-based technology. We shine a blue light and that's absorbed by chemicals called chromophores that fluoresce. In other words, their electron state is increased by the light, the energy from the light photons. And then they release photons of their own fluorescent light. And that penetrates the skin below and stimulates healing. So that's the essential approach. Pretty cool in terms of the technology side of things. Um, and so we're developing the wound and burn applications. And you see... Coming from the regenerative medicine space, you see a lot of the things that we've seen with other successful regenerative medicine products. You see better angiogenesis, better collagen production, reducing inflammation, and inflammation is you know, one of the bugaboos of, of biology at this point. I mean, we know it it's underscores so many of our, our medical conditions that are problems. And then it actually has an impact on the mitochondria. So mitochondria, the power plant of the cells, you know, in chronic wounds or, or uh, 
other medical conditions, the mitochondria can, system can be damaged. And then the cells can't do their job because they don't have the right energy level. And the fluorescent light energy photons actually stimulate the mitochondria to repair and you get the battery working again. And now the cells can do their job, which is heal. So if we go back, well, before I take this back step, where are you now with your capital raise? Just give us that status update real quick and then we'll go through the history of it. Yes, yeah, so we raise a, a seed via convertible note of about half a million, and we're currently raising a Series A, so five to six million is the target. Um, you know, we're sort of mid-raise, I would say, closer to the end than the beginning. So trying to pull the raise together is essentially the phase that we're at. We've got some interest in investors and in trying to get, you know, all the pieces pulled together into into a final package. So then. Tell us about that history. You got the seed round, but you saw that this technology existed. You wanted to do something with it. So you pulled it off the shelf or how did that work? And then once you did so and you became CEO or, or leader of this, of this technology and started to build the business afterward, I mean, walk us through that path of building it to where you got it to today. Yeah. So the company that developed this platform their name is Clocks, and they are a Canadian company, and their lead uh, candidate is really dermatology. They've done some work in wind and burn, so we knew that the technology worked, uh, but they, resource-wise, they just couldn't pursue all the different avenues that are potential. And look, I saw this in my last company. You get one of these regenerative medicine technologies that works, and all of a sudden, you know, every week, someone suggests something else you could do with it. So it's pretty hard to, you know, stay focused and also to pursue every possibility that looks good. Uh, so I think they made the right decision that they needed to outsource the other applications and they're focused on dermatology. So I saw the technology, you know, I talked to them about it. I think it's a really great fit for some key needs in the wound care space. And so we worked out a deal where I would, in licensing it, they're taking some equity in return and I would pursue it for wound and burn. And as I told you before, um, one of their investors who was really interested in the wound care space, he's himself a diabetic and loved the technology. And so he and I actually worked out a deal where he would provide the seed round. So it was one individual who provided the seed round? Yeah, I mean, as family office, effectively. Okay. So there was a very close connection there that it was very intimate networking that you knew the person. It wasn't like a, a full-on objective uh, raise where you're just going out there and gatling gunning your message for hoping for bidders. Right. I mean, effectively, it was someone who already knew the technology. And so he and I had to get to know each other, but he knew that, the tech, that he was interested in the technology. And it, we come across that theme a lot within early stage investing or even capital raises. And, and a lot in seed, it can still stick around in series A. It becomes a little bit more objective as you get down the, the lifeline or life cycle of a company and you get into more larger raises. But when it's in that seed phase or even series A, there's a lot of closeness when it comes to the money, right? I mean, raising a seed round, yes, of course, you hear about the people who have to put together their strategy and cold outreach to angel groups and go through that whole um, dance, if you will. But there's a lot of that very close proximity money when it comes to early stage seed stuff, where, like you said, the guy knew about the technology and it wasn't really a large challenge to get in that early stage money. Yeah, I think, you know, it's always helpful to know the people. Uh, but at the same time, I wouldn't discourage people who you know, don't have someone with that kind of money that they know. I mean, I think one of the things that we do as a system that's not good is make it all about who you know. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't want to discourage people. Look, I think maybe more than the fact that he knew the technology is he understood the problem. And you see this a lot in medical investing is that either the person or their family has the problem. And so they feel it personally. So you, you find someone with money and the same problem that you're going after, you got a pretty good chance of having them listen to you. So that, it's finding them that's the 
the trick, but you know, you, you don't have to have a bunch of millionaire buddies to raise money and, and please people don't believe that that's true. Does it help? Sure. Yeah. Can you do it without it? Yes. And we'll go to the series A and that strategy, but sticking on that seed real quick with that one-off situation and that family office, I mean, because of the proximity that you had, did you have to start putting together formal documentation? I mean, did you have an executive summary? Did you have a pitch deck? Did you have to go through a similar strategy of pitching, even though it was to one family office? Or was it like over coffee and I, I just want to get to know you. I do know the technology. You seem like a good guy. Let me give you half a million. Or did you actually really have to pitch it? No, I, I, I did not do a formal pitch deck for that, but I did sort of present what I thought was the future course of things, you know, what things would cost, what would we do? And he wanted to understand sort of from the business side, how is this going to look? So I did, you know, I basically read a memo that just summed up where I thought things were. Mm -hmm. And be, because, you know, part of what we have to do is clinical you know, I spent a lot of time looking at the clinical side. What will the trial cost? What will it look like? You know, how do we feel about the, the power that would be required, the size of the trial? Um, so I did a fair amount of analysis. And, but honestly, I would have done that. I mean, I basically did that to decide whether I wanted to be involved in this. I'd already done it, right? Yeah. I, they, you know, the clocks gave me information and I analyzed it because the first person who had to invest in this was me, but because I got to put my time into it. Yeah. So I definitely had, you know, I had done all that. I didn't make it pretty, but I, you know, I'd done the work. And do you find, especially when that close proximity of relationship for that early stage money, um, like the, the situation that you just went through with the, the family office, when you get that close to the circumstances or, or raising capital, do you find that the term sheets are less aggressive than the objective? I don't know you, pitch it to me. How does it fit into my portfolio venture capital company that comes down later on? Like, is it a little bit more soft and buddy-buddy or are the terms equally as aggressive? Um, he was a pretty hard negotiator. So I, I would say... <laughs> I would okay. say I, I, you know, whether that's generally true, I don't know. But look, I mean, a lot of these people that you're going to are business people, right? So they may not be venture capitalists every day, although he's very experienced investor also. But, you know, they're business people. So they're probably going to want to understand the deal and negotiate the deal because that's just what business people do. True. Um, so... Going back to your history then, as a lawyer, I just want to get this out so everyone can hear. And being a lawyer, going to law school, you were an IP attorney, as you mentioned. Um, it made sense for you becoming an engineer and then segueing right into that aspect of law. However, do you believe in business or even in this capital raise for the Series A that you're doing right now? Is there any benefits or takeaways or value adds that you got from being a lawyer? understanding how to do a capital raise? Was there any crossover or any value add? Well, I think that being a lawyer, you know, is helpful in med tech because med tech touches legal issues on so many fronts. I mean, you have IP, which is critical and every investor is going to want to understand where you are on that. You have regulatory um, issues that are really legal issues in practical effect. It's, you know, the FDA as a legal agency applying its rules. You know, you have reimbursement, which is a legal problem in the sense that, you know, a lot of it is Medicare and that's law. Uh, but also it's just lawyers are used to dealing with stuff that is complicated and a little dry, right? So, you know, I can sit down and go through some reimbursement problem and get to an answer, uh, even though, you know, it might sometimes make me want to blow my brains out. Still, <laughs> you know, lawyers learn to just, you know, pat work through that, right? You, you just have to do it. It's like trying to understand tax law. Um, so there's lots of ways that it's helpful. In terms of the capital raising part, I mean, look, I think the most of the capital raising issues that are legal 
you know, are pretty sorted out. Like as a, as an entrepreneur, you need to understand what it means, but there's not a ton of detailed negotiation because a lot of this stuff is sort of, here's the, you know, form term sheets that a lot of the, the things you could debate have been worked out over time. And the term sheets typically come from the investors, lawyers, or the investors themselves. I mean, I mean, they they present you the terms, and you, as an entrepreneur, along with I'm assuming your sidecar attorney who reviews them with you, um, and maybe that's you as a one man entity. I don't know if you're your own lawyer or not. If you have another one, but um, no, no one should represent themselves. I okay. Know, I, so, I believe in in getting a good lawyer. Always helpful. Okay. So you and your attorney, I mean, you sit there and you review the term sheets that was passed over to you by an investor and you basically say yes or no, or then counter it, right? I mean, you don't have to be a legal law expert on capital raises when it comes to term sheets. No, you more need to understand how the different you know, pieces of it work. So you can talk to the investor about it, right? Like What's pre-money? What's post-money? What does that mean? What are the preferences that they're talking about? It's they're, they're going to get to discussing those things with you before you can, you know, lawyer up for lack of a better word. So you need to know enough to be able to discuss with them sort of what you're expecting, what they're expecting, because the reality is the term sheet itself, you know, like I say, there's a model, right? The the National Venture Capital Association, um, you know, along with, with my, my friends at Omni, you know, Kelsey Chase over there is doing great work, but he re- actually represented me in a deal before, but they just published a revised model term sheet. You can get this thing and look at it. And it basically is covering all the different things that people often negotiate. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about that part. I would worry about understanding the fundamentals. And, you know, I've, I've suggested this to you before, I think, but I think the best resource for a normal human being to try to understand this is this book, um, Venture Deals by Brad Feld. Really good. Goes through all the things that you need to understand. So those who are listening right now, you're saying, the best book that you recommend to read for the, let's call it the novice or the layman trying to get through a capital raise is yep. Venture Deals by Brad Feld. Yeah. Okay. I think it's a great resource, covers all the legal or quasi-legal issues that you might run across. And like I say, you just want to be able to have an intelligent conversation. Then, you know, the lawyers can deal with the, the details of the language and exactly what it says. But you want to be able to talk to a VC who wants to talk to you about you know, the preferences that they want, or, you know, they want to talk about valuation, you know, in a way that's sort of a legal issue. Also, you want to at least understand how that works. Does governance come into it as well early on? Absolutely. Like, are they asking for a board seat? And what does that mean? Yeah. So those are the things you should educate yourself about just so you, because although we say it's legal, it's really business. Yeah. Right. The, the lawyers are writing it in words, but effectively it's a business decision. Am I going to give this person the power of a, of a board of director seat or not? Mm-hmm. That is a business decision. So you need to understand, you need to take responsibility. It's kind of like we always talk in health about you know, being an informed patient, right? Be an informed client, understand what the debate is about and what it means from a business perspective, your lawyers can worry about the language, but you need to know what we're talking about. So I want to fill in this gap between the time that you raised that half a million seed round from the family office to then obviously you've been running the business, but now you're, let's say, past halfway getting through your series A. So you had money in the bank. I'm sure there was a little bit of operational time. And then there was this moment in time you said, I'm going to sit down and click the button. And all of a sudden my raise on series A is going to start. Um, For those listening, is this your first venture capital raise before? Yes. So the prior business I ran, you know, we were an operating entity with revenue. So while we did raise money, it's a different world when you have 
you know, profit and revenue and, you know, growth curves to show people you're talking to different investors. So, you know, the sort of the lowest level I talked to in my previous life would have been growth capital and then private equity banks. So I've definitely done a lot of fundraising, but not specifically in the early stage VC arena. So for that part, this is all new to me too, or Has was. Have even the higher level mechanics of talking to growth stage capital, private equity and banks, have even that rubbed off a little? I mean, it's not the same game as you raising from early stage venture capital, but did that at least help prepare you somewhat for this? I mean, you're not the, you're not the engineer who did five years at Medtronic, for example, and had a great idea on a napkin and wanted to become a 28 to 32 year old first time founder who calls themselves a CEO and never has read and raised money, let alone understands the business aspect, right? Where you're going out and raising, like, was there any crossover from that previous life to what you're doing now? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, some of the skills are the same. Um, I would say the biggest difference is just, you know, when you're looking at it from a perspective of a business that's sort of in growth stage, then you have a lot of metrics to look at. Whereas if you're looking at it from early stage, you know, that we're, we're trying to assess the potential, but we don't have that much to look at from a business perspective. So you're, you're trying to understand what the business will look like, but you can't show people what it is today. Um, so your, your starting point is a lot fuzzier than it is you know, when you're, you know, have a lot of feet on the ground and you're selling things. Because, you know, when you, when you have that organization running, then a lot of the assumptions that we have to make today about how the business is going to look, you have answers to from the data that you already have. We cross this topic a lot uh, on this particular podcast series and, and even in general on raising capital. The differences between late stage and early stage investing, right? So to your point, you have metrics. I like to at least phrase it as, when you get down that way, you have traction, milestones, metrics, like you said, let's just say you have revenue. It becomes more, much more of an objective business where it never, never depends on the people. Of course, you want a good management team in place, right? But you know, you, you could, in theory, close a sliding door and look at books that describe the company, the, the revenue generations, the projections, et cetera, and then assess that company based on those metrics without ever having met the leaders of the organization and say, is this investable or not? Maybe that's a bit extreme, but just follow me for a second. On the yeah. flip side, when you don't have those metrics on the very early stage stuff, and to your point, you called it investing in the potential, it's much more about that quote unquote potential of investing in that early stage team to be able to bring it forward, which the product or technology itself might evolve or change numerous times but you're much more investing in the trust of the, the people who are driving it on an earlier stage rather than that more objective business that comes later stage. Is that true? Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I think that you know, the team is part of what you're banking on, although I would say that's true in growth stage also. Um, you know, so I'm an engineer, right? So I'm a math person. So if I look at it, if, if I look at a model when I'm, you know, have a growth stage business that's operating, then when I want to know things like, what's my pricing? What's my margin? You know, what's my revenue production per head or per sales rep? Then I have data for that. Now, I may argue about whether that's going to change over time, but at least I have a baseline. Whereas when you're sitting in the seat that I'm in um, today or that, you know, early stage investors, we're assuming we're making assumptions about all that. And it's important that the assumptions are as good as you can make them, but that's still never as, as strong as I've actually done it. And I see what the number is. I know that I can get people to pay a hundred dollars for that. Right. You know, right. You know, in, in the early stage, you're like, can I get people to pay a hundred dollars for that? What would people pay? <laughs> right. You're, you're trying to fill in the assumptions about all of that. So then going back to that filling in the gap of that moment in time when you decided that you're going to go outbound and raise this venture capital around the Series A, 
we know now that you've had experiences that certainly helped you out, but going out and raising this early stage round, how did you know what number to ask for? Meaning why five or 6 million and not three or 15? Um, what resources did you have to put in place? Executive summary, pitch deck, how did you decide to build them? Um, all that stuff, like j- just talk about when you decided that it was time to go out and raise a series A, take it from the, the perspective of someone listening into this, where they've never raised money before, they never even had the historical experience that you had, and they're looking to fund an idea that they have, and literally have no idea about the process, like wh- what's involved in going out and doing that? Yeah, so, I mean, we knew we needed to raise a series A, um, that was pretty much, you know, known from the outset because we need to do a clinical trial to get FDA approval for one of our key indications. So we, we knew that we needed to raise those funds. Um, in terms of planning for it, I mean, the way I did it was, you know, just like we were talking about, I'm a, I'm a math business person. I built a model of what I thought it would cost. And one of the things you have to do is decide like how far down the road do I need to get? So if I can model the next three years, you know, am I trying to raise so that I have a year of runway, two years, three years? Am I getting to some particular inflection point where, you know, things are going to change? I mean, for example, in my case, I'm going to run the trial, the trial's done. You know, that's going to change the valuation a lot in a positive way. So, you know, you would like maybe to get to that inflection point. A, a mentor of mine when I was you know, young in this business always said, look, everything's about getting through the next hoop, right? You get through the next hoop and then the next hoop and the next hoop. That's how it works. So you decide, okay, my target is 18 months. And then you have to do the best job you can. And, you know, people can help you do this if you don't have much experience doing it. But understanding what am I going to spend in those 18 months? You know, I would advise you to be conservative in your estimates, like overestimate a little bit because everything always takes longer and it's more expensive than you thought. And that's just fact. So, you know, you decide, okay, I'm going to spend X amount of money in those 18 months, I understand all the things that I need to do to get to the next stage, understand what my expenses are, then I, then I can kind of ballpark how much money I need. And that's obviously one of the key starting points. So you mentioned this, this traction and milestone-based driven philosophy of raising money, and <clears throat> it's, it's always healthfully debatable um, on who's raising money, right? So in the most clean fashion, people recommend, especially investors, they recommend raise the right amount of money to hit that traction where you're not raising excessive amounts of money to over dilute yourself. And sometimes we've heard of stories where it sounds in theory, great to have more than you need, but sometimes then companies either start getting distracted, flabby, wasting time, et cetera. So you rate, but also at the same time, how do you do it perfectly? Where if you decide that I'm a clinical medical device stage company, or I'm a medical device company that's going to have to go through clinicals, et cetera. And you hit these predictable milestones of design freeze and R&D, first in man, clinical trials, regulatory submissions, regulatory approval, commercialization, um, and obviously micro milestones in between. You know, what's, what's the philosophy? How do you properly balance that where you create your strategy of saying, that is my next major milestone. I'm going to go out and raise just enough to get there. And then I know that I'm going to have to raise enough, which obviously my valuation hopefully will increase. And then we go to the next one. But then we hear of all these sideways stories of that's why bridge rounds exist. That's why down rounds exist. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a very hard question as I think you you've sort of set up in your question it's not an easy thing to answer um, you know my perspective is you want to raise I mean th- there's two things here one is you're probably going to get a better valuation later if you meet the hoops so you're going to get less dilution for your current investors including yourself so that's nice um, but you know I would argue that success is more important than dilution <laughs> 
right? Don't don't try to shave a couple points of dilution and wind up putting the whole company at risk. That that's not a smart outcome. But second, you know, depending on the valuation, there just may be a limit to what you can raise. So you know, there's some percentage. If you think about the the valuation and the money you're raising, you know, people aren't going to buy 50 or 60 percent of the company. You don't want them to. So if you think about what your valuation is going to be, then what you possibly can raise is maybe 20 to 30 or 40 percent of that max so you know there's a couple different things that are there that are sort of pushing you to certain numbers um but ultimately if you have the choice i think you want to raise some safety factor but you don't want it to be out of control what's your suggestion on Timing. You mentioned 18 months earlier, but once again, for those listening in on futuristically raising money, you know, I, I actually was on a call with an early stage founder and entrepreneur a couple of weeks ago at this point, and they're just about to open up their Series B financing or raise this month. And by the way, for all those listening, this is August 2021. Um, and I said, well, great. When, when do you plan on expecting the round to close? They said, well, we'll probably have Series B wrapped up in November 2021. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> okay, good. So you had the exact same reaction that I did. I had to keep a little bit of a poker face. But going, going into the timing of this aspect, you know, that is a very, um, we'll call it youthful way of understanding uh, how to raise capital. Why does it take so long? And how much time should you realistically budget when you're going to open up a capital raise, what, what's that process and why? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I think um, I learned from this round because, you know, if you do a private equity round, it seems to be faster. Um, you know, they move pretty quick. Like the, they will review it, say yes or no. We want to do diligence. They'll do the initial diligence. They'll give you a quote, and there you go. Um, so it is. It's, it seems to be a bit faster. Maybe I've got rose-tinted glasses on the past, but I would have. I would have guessed that was maybe a six-month um, process. You know, the the VC or early stage seems to be longer than that. So maybe nine months. Now I haven't done a B. If you, if you had investors who you already knew, some of them were already invested and they're sort of with you on it and they want to do another raise, then maybe you could do it fast. So maybe the guy you're talking to basically effectively has already done it, right? He's already got the people interested who need to be interested. But if you're starting from nothing and trying to say, I'm going to raise... 4 million, 5 million, 6 million. It's going to take you a while. It's just my experience. Do you find that, I mean, with your one-off exception with the family office, the stories that you've heard, et cetera, do you find that raising seed capital versus now the first level of venture capital at the Series A, which one is more difficult? Is there one that's more difficult or are they both equally difficult in different ways? I don't know. I mean, I think in general, it seems to be the case that the earlier it is, the harder it is. Um, on the other hand, a lot of it has to do with how many investors there are who are interested in investing in a particular space and time. So, you know, in my particular situation, I think, you know, one of the issues is it's clinical stage and there's not that many investors who are interested in you know, investing at that particular stage, right? There's, there's more people maybe who will invest in something where you don't even have a prototype. And there's definitely a lot of people who invest at the growth capital stage once you have, you know, running sales and things to look at. Um, so, you know, it, it may just be a question of how many investors there are. But, you know, starting from nowhere is always hard. So two questions on that. Um, you're in the, the wound care, wound healing space, right? Yes. 
there's a lot of technologies that are trying to go after that space. And obviously, if anyone finds the holy grail or cracks the code, it, it's obviously quite a sizable market. And there's obviously technologies that are commercialized and, and working right now, but there's a huge, massive potential there. Um, is wound healing or regenerative medicine in general, when it comes to investors, is that a hard space? Are you finding that to have educated investors who can add value beyond just simple capital or even interested in the space itself? Like, is that a tough space? Yeah, I would say it's been fairly tough. Um, you know, in the sense that there's certain spaces that a lot of investors already know, like cardiac or neuro or orthopedics. There's just, there's been a lot of money invested. There's a lot of people who know those spaces. They understand them. And I think, you know, to your point, wound care is a massive, massive problem. And so, you know, there's clearly an opportunity for people to make things better and, and do well as a result. Uh, but there's less investors who are really familiar with it. And, you know, familiarity is helpful because they, you know, they're not worried about certain things that they get worried about if they don't know the space very well. So there's definitely there's fewer investors who are interested in it. So then leading to my next question, how, how do you go about finding your target list of investors? Meaning you have your pitch deck, your executive summary, you know your story, you're gonna go out and sell from the business side, from the tech side, from the operation side. So you have all your, your ammo for your arsenal. Now you're gonna go out there and, and find people who are gonna invest in your company. How do you go about that? Is it trial and error of reaching out to companies that invest in basketballs and spaceships and also wound care? Or how do you find your targeted stuff? Yeah, so, I mean, I think a combination of two things. One is just the networking side of it, right? You want to go to the people that you know um, or the people that the people who you know know, right? Second, two degrees of separation um, and try to get their feedback and their help so that you're you know, hopefully have an introduction to someone. Um, and then it's research, right? There's lots of different research sources, um, you know, starting with, with Google and the internet where you can try to figure out who's out there, what have they done in the past? Um, are they you know, sort of the right stage? So for my particular purposes, you know, I need either a VC who's willing to do, or, you know, med tech at the clinical stage, or, you know, perhaps family office or angel groups that are larger because, you know, it's a fairly large raise for angel groups, although they're getting, they're doing bigger raises now. So, you know, I, I have to look across that and see, you know, who's played in this space before, who's, you know, saying they're at the right stage. I mean, it's, you know, one of the frustrating things is some investors will say, you know, we're opportunistic across all state stages and really they're not. And when you actually talk to them, oh yeah, we are, but we, we won't take any regulatory risk. Well, then you're a growth stage investor, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't have regulatory risk? So Everybody does. We'll get to the warm introduction piece where there's a network aspect to it, but let's talk about the cold call or cold outreach and, and research like you called it. We'll focus on that real quick. Is it really that we'll call it archaic where it's the entrepreneur sitting in front of the computer with an Excel spreadsheet and just Googling and going through trial and error and looking at their portfolio companies and do they invest in something similar to me and reading what the investor websites say? I mean, is that really what we're limited to as an investor, or I should say entrepreneur raising capital when we have to cold outreach and we can't depend on our network anymore? Is it really that archaic? Is it that methodical and numerical and filtered? Yeah, I think pretty much. Yes. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, you, you've done a great service by putting together your spreadsheet. You know, obviously there's sort of more expensive solutions out there. You can do Crunchbase, you can do, um, you know, Life Science Nation has a very detailed uh, database, um, Cypher Bio, there's, you know, there's other sources, but ultimately they're still gonna give you a list. 
and you have to sort of dig through the list and see, well, this looks like it makes sense. And that looks like it doesn't make sense. So is, is that a huge theme as being an early stage medtech entrepreneur is whether it's dealing with the technology in a regulated space or raising capital in this early stage slash archaic opportunities that we just talked about of finding the right investor? Is it really that much of a, a grind? I mean, you know, when I, I want to be uh, dreamy here where everyone wants to be a CEO and wants to run a company and everyone thinks they make a billion dollars a year and they drive a Bentley or whatever it may be, yeah. you know, is being a med tech CEO as glamorous as everyone who's not thinks it is? No, it's not super glamorous. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's fun and rewarding, but glamour, no. Uh, you know, I, I think what people say about CEOs is true. I mean, you, there's two descriptions of the job. One description is, you know, you do everything that nobody else will do. That's one. And the other one is, you know, there's just certain key things you have to do. You got to hire people. You got to set the overall strategy and raise money. So if you don't like raising money, it's probably not the best job. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, people are pretty much constantly raising money. And that is a, a huge point to drive home. I mean, being a medtech CEO, if you don't either A, want to or like to or are proficient or efficient at doing so, if you can't raise money, don't be a medtech CEO. Yeah, I think that's generally true. It's very hard to outsource it. I mean, look, in the, in the later stage, you know, you hire an investment banker, right? And, and they do some of this grunt work for you. Although my experience has been that you still have to do a lot of it, right? What's the messaging going to be? What, you know, who has to actually deliver the message in the end, it's still you or the team, you know, some small group from your team, including you. So it's definitely something you spend a lot of time on. Um, and, you know, look, I know people who, you know, came out of the lab, great scientists wanted to be CEO. They did it for a while and <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going back to the lab. I don't, I don't like this. This is not fun. I'm going to go, you know, somebody else do this and I'll, I'll do my part. I'll, I'll come up with new stuff. So then if we go to the other side of the bucket that we were describing before, not the cold outreach or the research oriented capital raising strategy, but the network, very similar to the network that you somewhat had for the family office that originally invested in your 500,000, but yep. for leader raises as well, you know, how important is network and more importantly, how important is a warm introduction into an investor? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, more maybe a question for investors than for, for me, because you know, you've probably seen some of these arguments that um, you know, the warm investor, warm interest system is not good, right? It, it tends to eliminate people who aren't homogenous with the investor community. So, you know, maybe that's not the best way to do things, but it does seem to make a difference. Um, some investors are great in responding to cold outreach and, you know, some aren't. So it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to say what's going on on the other end. Uh, but you, know, you definitely tend to get more attention if you, if somebody that they know is, is referring you with that. That's just human nature, I think. And then the other skill set that goes hand in hand with a CEO having to raise money, a med tech CEO having to raise money. You also have to, you may not love it, but you have to like it enough to show up and do it every day. I mean, how important is networking for a CEO? I mean, you have to be a voracious networker, whether it's for capital raising, to run a team, to get new suppliers. Yeah. I mean, how important is networking as a skill set for a CEO? It's very important. I mean, you know, people may mean different things by that, you know, because it, in the old days, it was like, you know, going to the country club cocktail party. That's what networking was. You know, now I think it's more virtual, more, you know, seeing people at meetings. And that's one thing we haven't talked about, but there are investor meetings that, you know, may really be worthwhile. Um, I went to life science intelligence, emerging med tech, and I thought that was really good. Now it's expensive, you know, it's not the, the, the bargain basement way to do it, but, you know, you do get a chance to see more investors, actually meet people in person, 
you know, network with other founders. So that's a networking opportunity. Going to industry meetings, right? Of your own industry. If you're in dermatology, go to dermatology meetings and meet other people. You might meet investors, but you may also meet people who are running other companies in the space that might know investors who are interested, or at least then you know them for the future. So yeah, you wanna build that network. And you know, service providers are a huge part of it if you're sort of starting from zero. So you know, I, I highly recommend that people use service providers who are networked themselves because they can help you. And it comes down to, the, you know, for example, banks. I'm a big Silicon Valley bank fan. Why? Well, I think they give you know, great optionality in terms of bank loans and other things as you get bigger, but also they're just well-networked and they're helpful. They know the space. Your local bank you know, may not be as helpful in raising money for med tech because that's just not something that they do. Um, similar to you know, what you do in recruiting, you know, there's consulting firms that if you're using them, they can help you maybe Dave Uffer from Alira introduced us, you know, and they're highly networked. I'm not saying you got to use these people. I'm just saying pay attention to who you're using because that's a networking. Lawyers also, you get the right lawyer, they may know people. And so you just pay attention to, you know, what you're doing in that regard also. And, and you might be able to plug into networks that they're helping support. So then going back to, to your capital raise, you're going out there, you're looking for VCs at this point. Are you exploring all options for your Series A? I mean, are you going after traditional venture capitalists? Are you reaching out to strategic corporate investor venture arms? Are you talking to other family offices, later stage angel groups, um, alternative investment that we're not even naming right now. I mean, are you, yeah. are you looking at all this holistically? Or are you dead set on traditional VC? No, I'm looking at everything. I mean, when I first started this, this project, you know, I talked to a friend who's a very well-known healthcare investment banker. Now he doesn't do venture raises, right? He's more later stage, but I asked him his advice and his advice was basically cast a wide net. <laughs> I mean, that's, Literally what he said. And, you know, that's what we've tried to do. Because there are not that many venture capitalists in medtech, and because there are not that many of the medtech venture capitalists who do early stage, and because there are not that many early stage who do clinical, there just are not that many venture capital options. I think they're great options if you get one and find one that is interested in your space. Uh, but you can't have that be the only option because, I mean, I don't know what you think the number is, but it's not a high number in my read of venture capitalists who will do early stage med, med tech clinical programs. I think out of all the work and research that I've done on med tech investors is that the number is so alive where sometimes it's down a little bit, sometimes they're higher. Yep. I mean, COVID, we saw a huge injection of investors. Um, and then when you, I think what is even more important, <clears throat> I should say an extra layer onto what you were talking about on sitting in front of a computer and just seeing, do I fit in that portfolio? Do they do early stage? However, I mean, there's so many other components where you might in theory find the perfect investor, traditional VC. There could be one out there called series A wound care investor.com. Right. And that's, you know, it should be perfect for you. But then you just found out that they made their last investment and they're going out to raise their second fund right now and they don't have enough dry powder to even take on an investment for you. So right. it's not that you didn't find it. Timing. It's timing. It's yeah. timing. So that's what makes this whole game so challenging. And, and honestly, that's like a, a very deep-seated theme that I really want to get across with this whole podcast series to anyone who's listening. And I, and I open up with it in my introduction on here about yeah. there's not one silver bullet or specific formula, because the moment that you think you find your specific formula and you should just go mow down that lawn and it should just knock over like dominoes and you should be all set. You run into all these other variable roadblocks of timing and missed funds and, you know, new funds, late stage funds, funds that are out of funds, everything. Yeah. And that's what makes it so complicated. So um, I just wanted to, 
I, I think we pulled out some really good extraction points for early stage entrepreneurs to hear what you've gone through, your background, what you would advise them to think about and what's important in this game of, of early stage investing or raising capital, even in some high level comparisons to later stage. So a little bit redundant here, but I want to leave off on a high note and I'll leave it up to you. Top three, top five, whatever you want. Those listening, brand new entrepreneurs who voraciously want to be a CEO in med tech, as well as raise capital because they think it's the coolest thing in the world. They just never done it yet, but they really don't know what they're getting involved in. What are a few major highlighted points that you would recommend or advise them to at least think about and consider before they get into the game? Yeah. So I would say number one, you know, be prepared. We, we started to talk about it, but didn't get to it, but I mean, you need a deck, you need an executive summary. You know, I have a messaging sheet. Like there's a lot of even online stuff where they want you to fill out things. So keep all that stuff, you know, if they want 50 words on the company or a hundred words, right. I have it. So, you know, I have one messaging sheet, um, you know, you need some kind of way to keep organized. Now you can probably do it on spreadsheet. I'm using Salesforce, you know, the, the super cheap little company version. Um, there are other uh, uh, systems that you can use for the same purpose, but just to try to keep track of who I've talked to, what happened, do I owe them a follow-up? Um, you know, don't be discouraged because it is gonna take a while. It's not gonna be overnight. Um, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is the number of times you have to reach out to people, particularly if you're cold emailing. I mean, some people will respond to you in, in like two hours. Other people respond to your third email, you know, <laughs> four weeks later. And just because they didn't respond for the last month doesn't mean they're not interested. I mean, you know, I don't know what the workflow is, but clearly some people are just underwater or you know, that's their process. And so you have to keep, you know, touching people. You can debate when it becomes abusive, right? <laughs> how many times it's too many. <laughs> but, you know, I've had people when I sent them a third email and they're like, oh yeah, this sounds great. I'd love to set up a call. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a lot like a recruiter like me. I mean, sometimes when I'm chasing people down for a position, you never know what's really going on in someone else's life. So to your point, be relentless. Be, uh, yeah. be always yeah, pushing to, forward. Yeah, you have to be diligent and diligent and follow up um, and, you know, some kind of system to keep track of that, you know, whether it's a spreadsheet or, you know, uh, you know, an automated system like Salesforce, very helpful for that. Um, you know, again, spread the net wide. That, I think that's good advice because, as you said, to find the perfect fund at the perfect time in their cycle you know, that's willing to do exactly what you need them to do, it's hard to do. So you need to talk to a lot of people. Um, you need to look at the different options. You know, I think family offices have played a great role in med tech in recent years. The angels have, have been very important and they're going bigger. And then of course you have strategic venture, you know, which is two things. One, you know, you, they may invest, but two, you need to have those relationships and be talking to them because at some point, you know, maybe you want to sell and they would like to know what's going on. And I've been following you for a while, you know, coming from my business development background, I'll just tell you, you're a lot better off if they've been watching you for two or three years. So definitely worth talking to them. Um, you know, I, are there other types? I don't know. Those are the main ones I know, uh, but reach out to all of them you know, do your research, use your network to the extent you can, you know, try to add to your network when you are, you know, when you're at meetings or when you're hiring a service provider, whatever, you're always trying to build onto the network, um, use it as best you can and, you know, just stay after it, never give up. Let's leave on that's that. That's my note. biggest advice. I, I love that one. Never give up. I, I think that summarizes an entrepreneur's life, at least a successful entrepreneur's life very, very well. So um, I want to say for all those entrepreneurs who are listening, this has been an incredible episode of 
truly understanding what it really honestly means to be an entrepreneur in med tech. That, I think that's what I'm walking away with from this particular episode and, and understanding, like Howard said, never give up. And obviously the mechanics that we discussed on raising early stage capital and, and also some highlights that compare it to later stage. So Howard, I want to say thank you very much for your time, for obviously coming on here, sharing your stories, sharing your experience, sharing your background, and obviously highlighting Lumi Heal. Um, we wish you all the best with your Series A, and hopefully you close that out sooner rather than later. We look forward to the press release. We'll push that out for you. Um, and thank you again for your time. This is Howard Walthall, CEO of Lumi Heal. Thank you for your time. This is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thanks, Giovanni. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.